This is Trust the Evidence, a new podcast series from the Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine at the University of Oxford, presenting conversations with individuals interested in improving healthcare through the use of better evidence. Welcome. I have with me Dr Jeff Aronson, who has a significant number of jobs and past roles, but I'll just tell you some. He was a consultant physician at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford, a clinical pharmacologist, past president of the British Pharmacology Society, chair of all sorts of guidelines, including he's been on NICE Appraisal Committee for 10 years, and is the current vice president of the publications for the British Pharmacological Society's free journals. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you. So um, this is going back in time. When did you first start in Oxford? I came to Oxford in 1973 and spoke to David Graham Smith, who was Professor of Clinical Pharmacology at that time, and he asked me what I wanted to do. And I said I wanted to train to be a general physician and a clinical pharmacologist. And uh, he took me on at that point. What's a clinical pharmacologist? I've got in my mind what a general consultant is. But what is the role of a clinical pharmacologist? Well, the thing that attracted me about clinical pharmacology was that it covers the waterfront of medicine, medical practice. Everybody prescribes pretty much, and even if they don't prescribe, they will get into contact, come into contact in some way with medicines. Maybe it's a medicine that changes the result you're measuring in the lab, or a medicine that the radiologist has to know about because it can interfere with the contrast media he uses. So everybody has some contact in some way or other with medicines, and that's what attracted me to it. Clinical pharmacology covers the whole waterfront of anything to do with medicines, from their discovery and development on the one hand to practical uses in individual patients on the other, and everything in between, and going on to studying the effects of drugs in populations. So that's pretty interesting. Medicine, gosh, I mean, that comes to mind. How many, how many medicines are we talking about? Well, I reckon the British National Formulary contains about 1,200 individual drugs in it. That doesn't include all formulations. It's just the individual named drugs. If you go to all compounds that have been ever used, there are many thousands. But the basic core is about 1,200 in routine practice. And if you come down to the WHO's formulary, the international uh, recommended formulary, it's a few hundred medicines. Well, so basically that's 1,200 medicines. That's a lot to keep in your brain at any one time. (laughs) How does anybody keep up to date with what's going on, the development, the monitoring, the testing, adverse events of 1,200 different drugs? Well, it's it's a task. You have to keep, keep your eye on the ball, keep your eye on what is being published constantly, keep your eye on systematic reviews, which are very important for keeping up to date with the latest information, but also keeping an eye on all other types of studies that are being carried out with medicines. And it's a big task. It's a big ask. Interesting. So look, if I was a clinical pharmacologist, maybe let's go back to 1973. Was it a clear training path then, or was it something you had to make up? Well, it was. it was. It was emerging at that time. In 1970, the WHO issued a report on the future of clinical pharmacology. That was the year I graduated from medical school. And I read the editorials that came out in response to that WHO document that were published in the British Medical Journal and The Lancet at that time. 
and they were talking about the need for clinical pharmacologists and developing a training program. And so it was, it was beginning to become a recognized specialty. It had grown up in the 60s, was beginning to come of age. The WHO gave a kind of recommendation of how clinical pharmacology should develop. The journals were onto it straight away, and medical schools were beginning to appoint clinical pharmacologists if they hadn't already done in the 60s. By the mid-70s, pretty much every major medical school in the country, almost everyone, had a clinical pharmacologist training junior okay. doctors to become clinical pharmacologists. Now, what I've seen about clinical pharmacologists is, as a group of people, been tremendously influential. Thinking of people like Tom Waller, he was a clinical pharmacologist, yes. head of NHR HTA. Indeed. People like one of your colleagues and friends, Robin Ferner, yes. all sorts of people, including yourself. What does the career pathway look for clinical pharmacology right now? Well, it's got very difficult in the last 15 to 20 years. And I think the main driver of the difficulties in clinical pharmacology has been what was originally called the research assessment exercises, now known as the research excellence framework. Uh, And what has happened there is that clinical pharmacology has not been credited with being a high-class research discipline, despite the fact that several departments of clinical pharmacology have scored very highly in the assessment exercises. And that's something of a paradox. But there is, or has been, I think, a perception, and it's also driven, I think, partly by the fact that clinical pharmacology does not have an obvious specialty in it, the way, say, gastroenterology does, or cardiology, or organ-based specialties. So there's a perception, first, that it's not focused on anything, and secondly, that it doesn't contribute much to the very high-class, driving type of research that has been prevalent in the last 15 to 20 years. That, I think, is, is a misapprehension. It's not the case. But somehow or other, this view has developed. And over the last, as I say, 20 years or so, until the last five or ten, in fact, the numbers of clinical pharmacologists in the country have declined. Okay. What then happened, when I became president of the uh, British Pharmacological Society, I made efforts with my okay. colleagues to try and increase mm-hmm. the numbers of, uh, of consultants, and that has started to happen. But I think the reason is, as I say, that people in the position of wanting to appoint individuals to posts have looked to other disciplines more to fill positions when they became available than they did to the generalist type of clinical pharmacologist. So part of it is due to uh, perceptions about research input. Mm -hmm. Part of it is due to perceptions about the role that individual doctors can play with increasing specialization among physicians generally. That, I think, is now changing. I think that increasingly people are becoming aware that we need more generalists Mm-hmm. And that will mean that clinical pharmacologists will begin to come into their own again, I believe. Okay, interesting. So, uh, clinical pharmacology is on the rise. Let's just shift focus a little bit to one of your other jobs. So, NICE, the National Institute mm-hmm. of Clinical Excellence, yes. you're on an appraisal committee for 10 years. Tell us a little bit about that role. What does that involve? Well, NICE's job is to look at medicines that have been approved by the licensing authority for use in general clinical practice. Mm. 
When they are approved, the approval is based on pre-licensing studies that have been carried out by drug companies showing the basic clinical pharmacological properties of the medicine, how it works, what doses to give, what the drug interactions are, what the suspected adverse reactions are, and so on. A lot of very basic clinical pharmacology. And the drug then gets a license if the licensing authority considers that the balance of benefit to harm is favourable. In other words, in any individual patient, the expectation is that the drug will produce some benefit and that whatever risks of harms there may be, that those are outweighed by the potential benefits that the drug can produce. What that process of licensing does not take into account is how much it costs and whether it's good value for money. And in a health system that is, as it is currently, strapped for cash, how much you pay and how much you can afford to pay becomes very important. So the role of NICE, one of the major roles of NICE, and the role that I have taken part in on the appraisal committee, has been to judge whether you're getting good value for money. And that depends on an assessment, not simply of whether the drug works or not, not simply on whether the balance of benefit to the possible harms is favourable, but whether it's good value for what you're paying for it. And so you have to compare the size of the benefit minus the size of the risks of harms divided by the overall costs. And that's known as the, 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 the benefits are known as qualies, quality adjusted life years. The costs can be counted up. And what you then calculate is the cost per quali. And if the cost per quali is above a certain threshold, NICE will say, this is not value for money. Interesting. So we've just covered a bit of NICE there. That was like a, a super discussion, an example of, of what NICE does. But let me, you said, look, one of the things I used to find most of my evidence and information about drugs was a, a publication called the DTB, the Drugs and Therapeutic yeah. Bulletin. I have to say, that's, I forget, I don't really look to NICE for advice. I used yeah. to look to the DTP. It was a fantastic publication and seems to disappear off the planet. And you were involved at that at some point. Uh, the, the Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin was started by a clinical pharmacologist called Andrew Herxheimer, who saw something similar in the United States called the Medical Letter. And he came back to the UK and decided that we needed a bulletin just okay. like that. It was, a, it was like a fly sheet. It was four A4 pages. Yeah. Uh, containing two or three articles about whether a medicine was any good. That was what they mainly concentrated on. They would say, here's a new drug, a new medicine's just been licensed. Should we be using it? Does it work? Does it cause harm? What's the relation between the two? Does it have a positive, favourable benefit to harm balance? Now, in the initial days of that, Andrew it persuaded the Department of Health to fund that publication. And it was published by the Consumers Association, the people who do which. It was funded by the Department of Health and it was sent free to all prescribers in the country. So everybody, every prescriber got a copy of the Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin through the post once every fortnight. It was written by groups of individuals one individual would be asked to write an article and then that article would be sent to 20 or 30 others for comments and the result would be an anonymized production that would be published in the drug and therapeutics bulletin and as you say it was hugely influential because it was independent 
completely independent. Although it was funded by the Department of Health, it was independent of government, and it was independent of the pharmaceutical companies. So it gave you an unbiased view of whether you should or should not use a medicine, what the pros were and what the cons were. What then happened was that the government, the Department of Health, decided to withdraw funding, partly because NICE had come into okay. operation, and it thought that NICE would do a lot of the work, or re at least replace the work that the Drug and Therapeutics Bulletin had done. Not that it would necessarily do exactly the same, which I don't think it does. So what then happened was that the British Medical Journal publications took the DTB, the Drug and mm. Therapeutics Bulletin, over, and it's now a, a subscription journal, okay. so if you don't subscribe, you don't see it. Okay, that's a real shame, because that's one of my favourite yeah. ways of looking. So, so let's think about a bit of advice, then. If you said, I'm a prescriber, and there are hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions around the world, who are prescribing... Some advice that you think about things you could do as a prescriber to improve your prescribing, what would they be? Or if you're looking at me puzzled now, that's a difficult <laughs> question. Put you on the spot. <laughs> well, the basic answer is you need to know as much as you can about the pharmacology of the drug. There's no substitute, in my view, for understanding the clinical pharmacology. And that means a lot of knowledge about how the drug works, how to use it best, what patients should have their doses reduced, what patients should not have the drug, what possible adverse reactions there are, whether those reactions are more likely in one individual than in another, what the interactions are. That's a huge amount of information. And so either you try to encompass all that, which I think for most people is, uh, if not just difficult, really almost impossible, or you look for the kinds of advice that come out of guidelines and various pieces of information that general practitioners particularly are privy to nowadays. Uh, so that there isn't a simple way of answering that question. But there are some simple principles that one can apply. Okay, and the British Pharmacological Society has published these as I think it's ten principles of prescribing which everybody should look at and take on board. And there are principles such as, generally speaking, start with the lowest dose. Titrate the dose upwards. Watch what's happening in the individual patient. Take care to see what effect the drug has had. Uh, if you're introducing a new medicine to somebody who's already taking several medicines, look up the possible interactions because you may save a lot of bother just by thinking, could there be an interaction? So simple principles like that, starting low, building up, monitoring carefully what the effects are, thinking about drug interactions, looking out for suspected adverse reactions. Those simple things can help improve okay. your prescribing well look that's been fascinating we could continue for quite some time i think i've covered a small snippet of your career but i've learned some really interesting things you need to know as much as you can you need to have a lot of knowledge and it seems clinical pharmacologists have a lot of knowledge and basically start simple and build it up that could be a motto for life but i will definitely be looking at the 10 principles of prescribing thank you very much jeff Allenton. thank you you're welcome Thank you for listening to Trust the Evidence. 
If you liked this episode and would like to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.cebm.net or find us on SoundCloud and iTunes by searching Trust the Evidence. See you next time.